0: So with that being said, if you would, when you, when you reach the scriptures, if you'd stand for the reading of God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said... The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Just want to be clear we don't condone thievery. So if you stole your neighbor's Bible, it's not okay. Just wanted to make that clear. That was, <laughs> appreciate that, Sean. Uh, if, if you're a guest here, we just want to say thank you for making us a part of your week. Hopefully somebody's grabbed you and let you know a little bit about who we are and what we're about here at Providence. Um, we've been in a series called God's Greatest Gift in the Season of Advent, uh, and we've kind of been walking through, uh, and I, I've been using the term kind of concentric circles of generosity, that if God has given us the greatest gift he could ever give us in his son Jesus, then how as Christians are we called to be generous? And so uh, in week one, we kind of talked about what would it look like to be uh, Christians that are in covenant with God and generosity to the local church, and then as we move out from there What would it look like if we were Christians to be generous to the hurting and the helpless and those whom God has? Uh, providentially uh, put in our lives to meet their needs and today what I want to talk about is God's call for us to be generous uh, to the whole world or generosity to the nations or the stranger and the sojourner um, and so before I get going, I would like to pray, and I wanted to make a couple of notes before we jump in. Um, first of all, uh, how many of you have ever seen, uh, there's, there's a movie called The Hobbit. You guys ever seen that, or you know, a couple of you? Okay, good. All right, so I, I thought it would be important. I had read my whole sermon, and I didn't have this included, and I thought, okay, this is, a, this is important because it's honest. I, I, uh, <laughs> I most uh, relate to... Bilbo Baggins in uh, Lord of the Rings and in The Hobbit. And you might be like, man, why would that be your character? You know, it's like Orc number three is the guy I like the most. Um, And the reason that I do is because if you don't know, if you've never read the books, Bilbo's character is built out to be this guy who he lives in Hobbiton, he lives in this little tiny house, and he's totally content with his life there. Uh, he, he does not need to move outside of his own yard. He loves where he lives, and so he basically gets kind of coaxed and pulled by Gandalf into this world that is dangerous and uh, adventurous, and, uh, but it wasn't his first choice. Uh, you you kind of catch that drift when they actually did the movies that he's kind of tugged and pulled into leaving his hometown. I relate to that. I love locality. Um, I, I, I'm fine with, with where I am. I enjoy having my house, my, my yard, my place that's familiar to me. I'm a creature of habit, so my wife laughs and jokes with me, but it's serious. I could eat the same thing for a year, two years, three years, every day, and it wouldn't get, I wouldn't get sick of it. Uh, if you got in my car back when CDs were a thing, I had a six CD changer. You guys remember those things? All right. All right, it was under my back seat. I had the same, I didn't have six CDs. I had one CD. And I listened to it nonstop. That was just what I did. And my wife would be the one to change it. I'm so sick of hearing this. So she'd change it. I'd just leave that one in there. Uh, I'm fine with routine. Not only fine with it, I enjoy it. Uh, it's an important part of who I am. So I, I resonate with Bilbo and that he kind of get, gets pulled out of this routine, doesn't really want to go anywhere. I, I would say locality is important for the Christian because it keeps our feet on the ground. Locality is important because it reminds us that we're not the Messiah, that we are unlike God and that we can't be omnipresent. We are unlike God and that we can't be omnipotent and rule everything, control everything, so it kind of limits things for us. It keeps our feet on the ground to reality. I think locality is important because it gives us a practical context through which we can be obedient to Jesus in our everyday life. Locality is very important. Now, having said that, my sermon is not about locality, it's about the nations. Why are the nations important for our everyday life. Because where locality offers kind of a grounding um, reminder, a humbling reminder of who we are in the grand scheme of things, the nations give us a sense of transcendence about who God is and that He's inviting us into something that is much bigger than us. And we need that. Um, being involved in generosity to the nations, and not just giving of our finances, but giving of our time, our energy, our prayers it catches us up in this global purpose, this big, grand, glorious thing that God has been doing ever since Genesis 3, ever since the fall, God's been about this. And even if you go back further than that, what has God been about? He's been about his glory being displayed to and through the earth. Uh, One uh, pastor that I I love listening to, Steve Timmis, says it like this, God has always desired a people to whom and through whom he could reveal his glory. That's really what Adam and Eve was all about. I wanna reveal my glory to you, Adam, and Eve, and then I want you to be fruitful and multiply and go and reveal my glory through you to the rest of the world. That God never changed his mind about that, he's still about doing that. And so what we want to talk about this morning is how can we get caught up in that transcendence through being engaged in generosity to God's mission to the nations, that the gospel and the glory of God would go forward. That's really my hope. So in order to do that, what I'd like to do is pray, because I can't conjure that one up on my own. You guys... I can't do that. I can't make transcendence happen, but the Spirit can. So if you will, bow your heads with me. I want to pray the Lord would do that through his word. Father, we are so grateful that we have a place that we are either from or that we currently live. We thank you that we have a context through which we can be obedient to you in everyday life and that you don't expect us to be super normal or (laughs) supernatural, Uh, that we can be ordinary people and live to the glory of your name. But Father, we're also grateful that we're caught up in a grand story and that that grand story can catch us outside of our norms. It It can catch us up for even moments and remind us that you are doing something cosmic in our world, that you are not just a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you are a God of hosts, a God of the nations that, Lord, your glory has no end in the same way that your kingdom has no end. So help us, Lord, to hear your word, be shaped by it. And I ask, God, that for a moment you would bring some transcendence to our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would uh, remind us of the great story we're caught up in. And I ask you to move our hands to, to do what you've called us to do. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, when I came to know Christ, I was not the first one in my family to come to know Christ. My brother was. Um, and my brother used to listen to these, uh, this, so this goes further back than 60D Changers. He used to listen to these cassette tapes. Uh, he, he, one of the first things he did is he went to like a Lifeway. It wasn't called Lifeway. I think it was called Humble Christian Gift Store. Some of you guys might remember that. Uh, and uh, he went in there and he got these uh, case of cassette tapes that was the Bible on cassette. And it was the King James Version of the Bible by Alex Skirby. Uh, I remember it distinctly. I wasn't a Christian yet, but I loved listening to the stories of the Bible. My mom, after my dad was killed in a car accident, my, my mom put me in a Christian school in middle school. She was concerned that I might be a behavioral problem. I was skipping school a lot in the other school that I was in after that, so she was concerned that I might have behavioral issues and that maybe getting me in a Christian school might be helpful. Um, it was and it wasn't. I ended up getting kicked out of that school for stealing my teacher's car. Some of you know that, um, so, did not actually work out, kind of worked out, though, because those were the seeds of the gospel being planted in my heart, right? But I, I loved the story. So, in all of my schooling, I, I loved Bible class the most. I absolutely was enthralled by the stories of the Bible. So, my brother had these little tapes, and I would listen to Alex Skirby on cassette read to me the King James Version, and I kid you not, even when I slept, I would listen to these things. And there was one text that I don't know why, it has always resonated, it, it's, it, this is a random scripture by the way, guys, but I remember hearing this scripture in Alex Skirby's voice and when I began preparing for the sermon, this is the scripture that I was reminded of. It's Romans chapter three, verse 29. Alex Skirby used to read this to me at night and it says this, it should be up behind me. Romans three, verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. That's exactly how Alex Garby read it, and I don't know why I remembered that, but I remembered it over and over and over again. I would hear that when when I listened through Romans. Is God the God of the Jews only, or is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Now, that may mean nothing to you, and you might think, that's obvious, right? That's rhetorical. Of course, God is the God of the Gentiles. He's the God of the whole world, but in this context, this is not a rhetorical question. When Paul writes this to the church at Rome, He is saying something to the Jews that would have been totally counterintuitive to their theology, and that is that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was the God of Rome, the God of the Greeks, the God of the pagans. That challenges the Jews, and I think that the parable that we've been talking about last week and this week, it lays the foundation through which Paul can say this stuff. Like, Paul, you gotta think about this is writing to the Romans after Jesus had already lived, died, and been resurrected and ascended into heaven. He's writing to the Romans with this new theological truth, which is not all that new, by the way. It's in the Old Testament, too. But the Jews had gotten it so twisted that he's coming back and saying, no, God is the God of the Gentiles also. That would have been a major, major problem for Jewish theology, and he says it, I think, standing on the ground of the Good Samaritan parable. So... Last week we talked about how the Good Samaritan parable is about us being called by God to to reach out to the hurting and the helpless. This week I wanna talk about the Good Samaritan parable being about crossing the street and caring for the sojourner and the stranger and how Jesus uses the story to take a Jewish lawyer and turn his theology upside down about the way in which he views nations. Okay, so let's talk about the characters in the story first. There are two ways to read your Old Testament. I believe one's wrong and one's right. The first way to read your Old Testament that is wrong is that it's basically God giving approval to Israel to be self-centered and a racially proud nation. If you read through the Old Testament, you get this sense that God's giving them identity as a nation, he's setting them apart as holy, which means he's taking Israel, and he's setting them over here, and he's got every other nation over here, and he's saying, I want you guys to be unique. And he sets out the law in the Old Testament. So the first five books of the Bible, you get all these laws that he says, Israel, this is how you're gonna live. The nations may live this way, but I am the Lord your God, you will live this way. And if you read that, and you read through that, with the lenses on, that God's favoring them for just their sake, then you would also think what the Jews thought in the New Testament, that perhaps God was the God of the Jews only. But there's a right way to read the Old Testament, which is this. Once again, God desires a people for himself so that he can display his glory to them and then through them. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, I will bless you so that you might be a blessing, right? I did, did I do a good job, did I do a good job as a pastor? That you would be a blessing. Hopefully you already know that. I've read that a number of times. And that through you, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. What does that mean? When you actually go to the Hebrew word study of families, it means all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And that when he sets apart Israel with these laws for holiness, he sets them apart for one reason alone, and that is that he would display his glory through them. He said, Israel, you're going to be a shining lamp to the whole world. Every nation will see my glory in you. And that was God's purposes. So there's these characters in the Good Samaritan parable that I think are key in Jesus making his point about how the lawyer and the Jews had mistakenly viewed the nations, and maybe even their brothers. So there's these characters, there's four major characters. Number one, the lawyer. The lawyer is pulled outside of the story. He's the one interacting with Jesus. The lawyer is the one who comes to Jesus and said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The response is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer's rebuttal to that is, okay, but who's my neighbor? He wants more context around the idea of neighbor. Now, the lawyer knows the Old Testament law better than most. The Old Testament law is is what the Israelites would live their lives by. It was what they were judged by. The lawyer would be, in, in that culture, he would be represented as the model of wisdom and knowledge. He knows the Bible. He knows what's going on in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, so much so that most likely he had major parts or most of it memorized. He knew God's law. So when you think lawyer, don't think, um, I don't know, don't think uh, whatever you saw in a Hollywood movie, like a few good men, right? Jack Nicholson's on the stand and Tom Cruise is the lawyer. That's not what we're saying here. This lawyer knows God's law and he's questioning Jesus as a teacher of the law and he wants to know, what do you think about the term neighbor? Okay, then you have three particular characters inside the story, priest, Levite, Samaritan. Who are the priests? The priests are the Israelites that are in the line of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother, you guys remember that story? And God gives these men, the sons of Aaron and the relatives of Aaron, the responsibility for making sacrifices, making offerings, and setting apart the people for God as holy so that they could worship God and commune with God. The priests were to kinda set the stage for these moments where Israel would congregate together to worship God. They would make animal sacrifices, grain offerings, bread offerings. The priests were set aside to do these duties. They had to first consecrate themselves, then they would consecrate the people. Then you have the Levites. So if the priest is the model of holiness, the Levite is the the model of servanthood because the Levite of the tribe of Levi is responsible for being the priest's helper, right? So the Levite is um, taking care of the temple furnishings, taking care of the temple instruments, uh, he's a guardian of the temple, so legitimately Levites would stand outside the tabernacle in the tent to make sure that like, people didn't wander into the tent and just kind of dead, right? Like, the Bible actually says that when God would come down and meet with Moses and Aaron, that if they weren't careful, somebody came in that was unconsecrated or unclean, they would drop dead. That actually does happen a couple times in the Bible um, where someone touches the Ark of the Covenant. One time a guy, uh, the, the oxen stumble, the Ark of the Covenant's gonna fall, he tries to catch it dead. I mean, that was brutal, but this happens, there's a, there's a holiness to God that's continually uh, talked about in the Old Testament. So the, so the Levites would kinda make sure that no one just wandered into the wrong tent, that's a good thing. Um, think of the Levites like, they are the set up teardown team, all right, for Israel in the desert. They would set the tabernacle up, they would tear it down, they would move. Then the Levites would set the tabernacle up, they would tear it down, that's so that Moses and Aaron could commune with God and get the direction on where they would go, when they would go, all of those things. When they actually had the temple system, the Levites would be there alongside the priests. That's the second character. And then lastly, you have the most nefarious character for the Jews, and who is that? The Samaritan. For us, like, when I grew up, I literally thought Samaritan just just meant citizen by my own context clues, because everybody would say, oh, what a good Samaritan. I thought context clues, they were just saying a good guy. No. Samaritans in this context would be hated by the Jews because they, were, they belonged to this group, this ethnic group that was born after the Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament. You guys remember in the Minor Prophets where God's talking about sending Israel to captivity a lot? So that what happens after Solomon is the kings of Israel begin to turn more and more and more evil to the point where Israel has, as a kingdom splits. Think like civil war in the United States um, where we split over an issue. Israel split over the issue of would they follow Yahweh or would they, would they allow paganism to creep in, okay? So 10 tribes broke off to the north and they basically fell into paganism and two tribes broke off to the south and they became the kingdom of Judah. Both, both of these kingdoms, north and south, ended up falling into paganism. It took Judah a lot longer, but the northern tribes just fell headlong. They were the first ones to go to Babylonian captivity with the Assyrians, and so when many of them were taken off into captivity, some of them stayed with the Assyrians and they did what to the Jews would be an unthinkable thing. They, ma- they married in with the Assyrians and they began worshiping their other gods and they began having children. So the Samaritans would be kind of this half Jew, half Gentile. And that was to the, to the Jews who had been carried off to Babylon, they hated them for it. So when they returned from Babylon, they had a big falling out. The word Samaritan was legitimately used in Jesus' time as an insult to people. You ever read the text where the Jews come to Jesus and say, are we right to believe that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? That was an insult. They were basically saying, you know that whole thing about how your, your mom was, you were born of a virgin? Well, we know who your mom really slept with. That's what they were saying. And you have a demon. This was, this was used often as an insult. Jesus uses the Samaritan And the way in which he uses them is just gonna be baffling, right? There's lots of bitterness that exists between the Jews and Samaritans at this time. Now, okay, so we're in the holiday season, we're in Christmas season. Um, This is a time of year where we're gonna see a lot of parts of our family that we haven't seen in years. Okay, maybe a year, maybe two years. If you guys kinda do the one year year on, one year off with your in-laws or whatever, you're gonna see people you haven't seen in a while. What I'm pretty confident will happen, you'll have a lot of catching up, a lot of laughter, um, and then family feuds might be rekindled too. Anybody know that, right? There's whole movies built on this idea. Like there, there, there is going to be at least one of us in here where grandma's gonna sit down and she is going to recount the original offense of the family and why you need to carry that offense over. You know what I'm talking about? Where she'll sit you down and say, this is what they did. And she'll take you all the way back. And it might not even be in her lifetime. It might be her parents or her parents' parents. And this is why you can't hang out with their children because they're bad people. Even though they're family, no. Right? This happens. Jesus is walking into the height of a Hatfields and McCoys scenario here. When the lawyer asks the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus is about to tell a story that's going to blow his hair back. He enters the climate and he says this. Now, I want you to remember, the lawyer is the master of the Old Testament law, and he has just asked, who is my neighbor? Okay. Okay. So, the law says that we're supposed to love our neighbor as, ourse- as ourselves, but in the particular part of Leviticus, it says that it, it seems to be talking more about your brother, your national brother, your fellow Jew, right, in Leviticus. Okay, I believe that the lawyer probably is leaning on that part of the text. About 20 verses later in Leviticus, it says that you should treat the stranger and the sojourner like your brother and love him as you love yourself. Jesus knows this. So he's about to teach him this, but he's gonna do it through the Samaritan. Now, remember, the Jews hate the Samaritans because they intermarried. Now let's talk about what was God's actual law around intermarriage. So in Deuteronomy, it actually does say, God says, don't marry the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites. There's three more, can't remember them. Okay, seven nations. He says, don't marry these into these nations. That's half the text. You know what the other half says? Because... They will turn your heart from the Lord your God. That's key. What was God's reason for, not, for asking the Jews not to intermarry? It had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with religion. And guess what? The New Testament doesn't change that. What does Paul say? We should not be unequally yoked. The Old Testament and the New Testament have zero differences in God's decisions there. This intermarrying issue was nothing to do with racial boundaries that God was laying out. It wasn't in Deuteronomy, and it's not in the New Testament. It has everything to do with our hearts being aligned on who God is, what God has done, and that we ought to marry those who believe that there's only one God, and that we should love with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? That's what God was after here. The Jews had twisted this, and their interpretation was that the Jews were a superior race, and that alienated everyone who wasn't ethnic Israel. Okay. So this story is probably really unexpected for the lawyer, but it's very fitting, okay? He's about to ask him who his neighbor is, and the story goes like this. Now, we talked about it last week, so I don't need to spend too much time on it. What happens? Well, the priest and the Levite walk by a man. Now, you don't know if the man's Jewish. You don't know really the man's ethnicity at all. Jesus doesn't tell you. He's just a man that's beaten up, robbed, and basically left for dead on the side of the street. The priest and the Levite both pass right by him, and they pass on the other side of the street, they don't get close. Now you can make uh, arguments that uh, in the law the priest could have been afraid that he was gonna become ritualistically unclean if he had touched a dead man and therefore he probably had a reason to do so. Nonetheless, Jesus doesn't even make mention of that, he just says they pass right by and then the Samaritan enters. So the priest and the Levite aren't the heroes, they're actually villainized. And in some ways they're kinda tongue in cheek villainized for using the law in a way to neglect mercy and compassion. Here's something that maybe you don't notice in the parable that I think is important. Have you ever wondered why Jesus decided that he would make the Samaritan the hero and not the guy that was beaten up on the side of the road? Walk with me on this. If the purpose of the parable is only to say that we need to help needy and helpless people, and we need to care for them no matter who they are, why wouldn't he just say the Samaritan was beaten up and there were three guys, a priest, a Levite, and a normal dude? The priest and the Levite went right by. The normal Jew did the good and righteous thing and he loved on the Samaritan and he bound up the wounds of the Samaritan and he poured oil and wine and then he sat him on his camel and the good Jew led the Samaritan to the end, paid his debt. Why wouldn't he do that? How about this? If he's just trying to bring cultural commentary on the religious system of the Jews in that day, would that have not sufficed for him to say that the priest and the Levite didn't do what the regular guy did? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he makes the Samaritan the hero. See, this wasn't just a religious critique. Jesus is going after the Jews' tribalism at the very heart. Jesus turns to the lawyer and, after cornering him into a confession, he says, "Hey, which one would you say was the neighbor?" That's a, it's cornering him into saying the Samaritan. What does the man say? The one who showed him mercy. He won't even say the Samaritan. He can't. It's like vinegar to his lips the one who showed him mercy. Once Jesus gets that finally out of him, what does he say? In essence, he says, go be like a Samaritan. Oh, yikes. The story is just an affront to this man, right? Now, here's what I would say. Jesus is not just after the reconciliation of the Samaritans and the Jews. He is laying the groundwork for how the gospel reconciles the human race to each other. Let's read Ephesians chapter two. This is Paul talking about what Jesus did in the gospel. And let's think of it in light of what Jesus is saying here in the Good Samaritan parable. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a bleak description of what it would be like to be a Gentile or Samaritan, perhaps. But now in Christ, you who were once a far off, stranger, sojourner, outcast, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility he has made two men one man two nations one nation multiple nations one nation by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two and so making peace and he might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. That would be the Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. Those would be the Jews. For through him we have, both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure the being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay. That is counterintuitive. That's what Jesus is after here. When the, the, Samaritan, or the, the lawyer thinks that he has geared himself up to get more theologically astute on who his neighbor is, Jesus just taught him and schooled him on Old Testament theology all the way to the cross, offered it up on a platter with one story. And man, does it sting, right? It's my contention that parables like the Good Samaritan were the fodder for the fire of mission in the hearts of the apostles in the book of Acts. I really think that Paul the Apostle probably looked at the Good Samaritan story and it often is what motivated him to go to places like Spain where he said the gospel, Jesus Christ has not yet been named here and it's gotta go forward. I believe that. I believe that parables like this were the ones that caught up the disciples to be willing to be martyred for their faith because they saw this action, this story as more than just about us being willing to to stop on the side of the road but that it gave them a global vision for God's gospel to go forward to every single corner of the earth. I think it gave them a desire for radical generosity, even if they didn't know who they were giving money to. Like, have you ever thought about that when Paul said, hey, I want you to give me money so that I can go to Spain, that most of those people, not only had they never even been to Spain, they probably have never heard of Spain. But Spain, (laughs) that, that means nothing to them. And yet, they were willing to give him finances for what reason? Because they believed what Jesus was talking about here in the Good Samaritan that it extends far beyond the walls of what we would consider our locality. The gospel of God is not the full gospel unless it is good news of great joy for all people, it's a partial gospel. This is Luke chapter number two, verses eight eight through 14. This is the announcement of the gospel to the shepherds. Hey, we're in Christmas season, right? This is the announcement to the shepherds on who Jesus is. In the same region, there were shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring to you, what? Good news. Good news, that means gospel. That's literally what the word gospel means. I bring to you a gospel of great joy. That is for all the people. For unto you is born this day. Unto who? Unto all the people. Unto the shepherds, but unto the whole world. Is born this day. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Don't you love that he says, unto you is born this day in the city of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was born for the world. He was born in a place, but he was born for the world salvation of every nation so locality matters but so does a global vision of what god is doing we have a place that we primarily serve that we primarily care that we primarily are obedient but we have to have a global vision of what god is doing in the whole world the prince of peace was born in bethlehem but his peace would extend to every single person okay so i want to close with a couple thoughts now this is gonna be maybe odd at first that I'm gonna use this quote, but it's, it's, there's a purpose, at least I hope. <laughs> this is a quote from a book called Heaven by a guy named Randy Alcorn. I wanted to read this, and then I wanna kinda talk a little bit about nations. He says this, nothing is more misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that we, what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen television. A new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. Everybody agree, that's a good list. I would like most of those things. But what we really want is what? The person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. What's he getting at here? He says that the longing in our hearts for all that junk is really our longing for transcendence, It's the longing for the eternal. It's the longing for something grander than what our locality offers to us. You ever wondered the wanderlust of, I don't know, teenagers, 20-somethings, right? Just follow them on Instagram, you'll see it. What's really there? What's happening there? Well, what's being combined is their ability to not have responsibility, like, you know, people with kids and a house and a mortgage and a job and all that stuff, right? Most of us sitting here, combined with the God-given eternal gap between what they know they were made for and what they're currently experiencing. Aha, you and I experience that every day too. You and I experience the gap between what we know we were made for and what the locality really offers. We get glimpses of what we were made for. When you hug your child, whether he be little and you can cradle him in your arms or whether he's grown up to be a young man and you're proud of him, you, you get a glimpse of what fatherhood or motherhood was meant to be, and in that moment, there's a temporary soothing of that ache in your soul, right, when you hug your spouse and you're not ready to rip their head off, right, in those rare moments, when everything's okay and you hug them and there's relationship and there's peace and there's joy and there's, uh, there's acceptance and not rejection, like I'm accepted by you, I'm loved by you, and it's mutual and there's union, you get a glimpse of what you were made for, Or when you sit down and you eat a great meal, right? You take the first bite, you're not like sick full yet, and it tastes fantastic, you get a glimpse of what you were made for. But what you and I both know is that we'll wake up into this area that's incomplete still. Randy Alcorn, he, he leans into this and he says, so what is our, our real longing for that list, laundry list of things when we say this is, if we just had this, this would fill our longings? It's the transcendence, the gap that's there that we're trying to fill with finite things. So what does a call to the nations do for that? Well, here's three things I think it does. Number one, I think that a, gener- a, a a generous heart for the nations guards our hearts from tribal tendencies. So if, if we are uh, bent to be kind of tribal and just kind of take care of our own, generosity of the nations opens our eyes to the global vision of God, so it guards us. But here's two things I think it does for transcendence. Number one, it unites our hearts to the purposes of God that are cosmic and not just local and temporary, Right? It connects our hearts to what God's doing everywhere, and sometimes, friends, we need that. In the same way that we need someone to set our feet on the ground and not just keep our head in the clouds, we need sometimes for God to pick us up into the clouds when we're in the doldrums of the everyday, right? Like, that's what I I think in Lord of the Rings, that's what Gandalf offered for Bilbo that he needed but didn't know he needed, which was someone to coax him out of his hole and into the life and world that is adventurous, even though he was very comfortable where he was, because comfortable can also mean stale, but the nations, they bring us into this whole other view. What's God doing all over the world? And then lastly, I think it connects our hearts with our future hope of God's kingdom. We're in Advent season. We're looking forward to Jesus' second coming. Did you guys know that the Bible tells us there's gonna be a marriage supper of the Lamb one day and that it's not just gonna be people from Humble, Texas at the table? Hey, you might not even, it might not be burgers that we eat. It could be Mediterranean food. Crazy, right? Shocker. There will be people of, different skin tones, languages, ethnicities, stories. Could you imagine that one day we're gonna sit across from people who were in the midst of the Holocaust and how they fought for their faith? We'll sit across from people who face down guys like Nero. We're gonna sit across from people who have went through, like we talk about the Exodus, can you imagine the fact that whether we sit across from Moses or we sit across from, you know, random guy that went through the Red Sea. You're going to hear that story in person. And those are global stories. Those are stories of the nations. The Hebrews tells us that there's some people that we haven't even heard their stories and they're better than you could ever imagine. I think that a gener- a heart that is generous and a mind that is thoughtful of the nations, it's connected with this overall Hope that one day God's gonna have a kingdom where every tribe, nation, and tongue is represented, and we're a part of that. Like, we're not only a part of that because we're one of the tribes, nations, and tongues, we're a part of that because we get to be a part of actually bringing God's sons and daughters from all across the earth into his fold. As one pastor says, it's the full reward of the lamb's suffering, and that's what we're waiting on. The lamb has suffered on the cross for all of his children, and not all of them are brought into the fold yet. And you and I get to be a part of that. So, a couple things. One is, how do we get involved in that? Well, we always use this: we pray, we give, we go. Right? I think we should do all three, but we all we don't always do all three at once. So we pray for the nations and we pray for those who are being sent. We give to the nations and we give to those who are going to the nations to share the gospel. And then we go ourselves when God allows and calls. So we have a team going to South Africa, their shirts out in the lobby, you can give towards that. That's like $10 and you could wear that when you go to sleep or you can wear it to work, your decision. But that's a way you can give. You can pray for them, you can encourage them, you can be a part of what they're doing. But I think there's other ways that we can get involved. My wife and I, we love uh, Compassion International. It's the way you sponsor children all across the world. We get letters and we we basically have pen pals and we have a little girl named Nima who we sponsored when she was five. She's now 16 years old. It's crazy, right? She's now 16, about to be 17. We sponsored her, her almost most of her childhood. And, and it was $30 a month or something, and we were able to care, give her an education. We were able to help her have food and clothing and her basic needs, and also with her family. It's awesome. That's a small way that we can be a part of God's story in the nations. But nonetheless, I don't think that this is an optional thing. I think it's what God's called us to. This is not something to say, oh, that would be a nice cherry on top. No, the gospel's only full if it's for a whole world. Amen. It's not truly the gospel unless it's for all the people. All right, I wanna close with this. Consider the parable of the Good Samaritan in light of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. D.A. Carson said this uh, in a video when I was watching as I was studying, and it blew my mind. I thought, oh, duh, Luke is writing this, and he's meticulously deciding, where will I tell the story of the Good Samaritan in my gospel, and he put it right here. Jesus is on his way to the cross. So he's on a journey, not from Jericho to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus is on a journey, from wherever he is to Jerusalem, and he's walking along the way. You see, the priest and the Levite, they were on their way to the temple to rehearse something that Jesus was going to actually fulfill. They were about to do sacrifices. They were going to do the blood on the altar. They were going to do this whole cleansing process. Jesus was on his way to Golgotha to actually do it. He was gonna actually do what they've been rehearsing for thousands of years. And have you ever thought how shocking it is that Jesus, on his way to the cross, he stops and decides to heal people? Why wouldn't he just keep going? Why wouldn't he say, listen, I'll heal you now, but really, I'm going to do the real thing, so this really isn't even important. No, he stops, and he heals people. He stops, and he talks with the lawyer on the way. Why even talk to this guy? He's probably stubborn and angry at you, and he's just gonna plot to kill you anyway. Jesus stops in the middle of heading to the cross and he doesn't only engage with his fellow Israelites. He stops, talks with the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. He talks with Gentile women, which is like double doozy in his day, right? That he's talking with a woman and he's talking with a Gentile woman. He talks with the Syrophoenician. He talks with all these Gentiles, all these Jews, all these Samaritans and why would he talk to any of them? Why wouldn't he just go to the cross? And I think the answer is... It's because Jesus cares for us. And so this morning, I wanna close with this. You are loved by your savior and king, and he's the savior and king of the whole world, all of the nations. And the most shocking thing to us this morning is that that God loves you where you're at. The God of the nations who controls everything, the king's heart runs like a stream through his hand. He knows you, he longs, a relationship with you and he wants to meet your needs this morning and it's not gonna put him out because he can keep the whole world spinning and all the nations and he can still meet your need. Wow. What a gospel. What a gospel. So if you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, as we come to the table of the Lord, we are humbled, give us eyes to see a global vision of your gospel. Get us caught up in the transcendence of you being a God of the heavens, of the nations, of the hosts. That one day we're gonna sit at a banquet table full of the nations with our brothers and sisters. The whole world, all of the wars will cease. All of the governments will submit all of the hardship, all of the sickness, all of the turmoil in our entire earth, you will say, peace be still, and we'll be seated with you. And yet still, Lord, you care about us. Still, Lord, you ask us questions about our lives. And so, Lord, as we come and take of the the bread and the wine, may we remember that on your way, to be broken for us and to offer us healing, that you're willing to stop on the side of the road and minister to broken people like us. We're so grateful, Lord. Help us to have the humility to admit our brokenness and to bring you our needs. In Jesus' name, amen.